Hi folks, welcome to episode two of this three-part lecture series on the philosophy of science and its relevance to research design with a specific eye toward social scientists and the social sciences. My name is Patrick Thaddeus Jackson, everybody calls me PTJ, and as I said, this is the second of three parts. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking across the top row of the two by two that I outlined at the very end of the last lecture. So we'll be talking today about a couple of different varieties of mind-world dualist approaches to doing social scientific and scientific in general research. And we will be relating those to the collapse of the logical positivist project in the way that they differently engage with the remnants of that particular project. Also, fair warning, there may be some dog barking because my dog is out in the backyard and other dogs are walking by because it's just that time of day, so it's entirely possible that there will be some unanticipated barking. Also, you may hear the clinking of my cup of tea as I sip tea while talking through this particular lecture. So that's your warning, and let's begin. So I mentioned last time that the way I've structured the two by two, the way I've structured the different approaches to doing factic inquiry, scientific inquiry, is by these pair of what I've called wagers, right? Now, wagers are provisional positions on these likely unresolvable issues, things you can't demonstrate one way or another, things about which different groups of reasonable people might disagree. And what is interesting and important for our purposes is not trying to adjudicate between positions, not trying to determine which of these wagers is correct, but working out the logical implications of these wagers when it comes to thinking about the way in which we design our research. Another way of saying this is that the wagers that I'm interested in, in the course of this particular depiction of approaches in the philosophy of science, are wagers in what we might call philosophical ontology which is to say they pertain not to the character of objects in the world, that would be scientific ontology or something. Instead, philosophical ontology is really about the ways in which the mind and the world are connected to one another, the mind-world hookup, if you will. How are we plugged into the world? How is the researcher plugged into the world? How do they relate to the world? What kind of relation between the researcher and the world sustains the particular activity of research that is justified by and called for by a particular position? So in this sense, philosophical ontology and wagers in philosophical ontology are more conceptually fundamental than what might be called epistemology. And the reason why these are more fundamental is because the very notion of epistemology assumes that we are in an essentially representational way of dealing with how knowledge relates to the world. Epistemology, traditionally, 
is about various ways of crossing that Cartesian gap between the mind and the world so as to assuage the potential Cartesian anxiety of the rational knower. So most approaches to epistemology in philosophy of knowledge tend to be wrapped up with this mind-world dualist depiction of things. And because I have argued that mind-world dualism is itself a wager in philosophical ontology, of course I wouldn't want to then prejudge that wager by starting to talk about epistemology as its own separate kind of category. So mind-world dualism, mind-world monism, phenomenalism, transfactualism, these are not simply positions in how we know things. Because the very formulation of that, we and things are separate, and knowing is about what cuts between the two, what passes between the two. Instead, what I'm trying to get at here is monism, dualism, transfactualism, and phenomenalism are ways of worlding, ways of being a knowing subject in the world. And that's kind of the level at which the distinctions that I'm talking about tend to operate. So a little more fundamental than what usually goes under the heading of epistemology. Now, in order to depict these in a way that doesn't require us to spend hours and hours picking through the nuances of every person who's ever written about these things, what I have done is I have artificially or perhaps instrumentally dichotomized these wagers. In actuality, there are lots of different positions between mind-world dualism and mind-world monism and ways of combining these things. But for the sake of exposition and clarity, I am talking about this as if it were simply a binary choice. Actual people, actual researchers, and actual philosophers tend not to fall 100% in one or the other of these categories. People mix them, they take intermediary positions and so on. It's just a lot harder to explicate an intermediary position than it is to explicate something that's kind of artificially clear. And so that's what I've done here, is I've set this up as if these were mutually exclusive binary choices that there was no possibility of combining or mediating between. You should resist the temptation to take these two dichotomous wagers and turn that into a classification scheme for attempting to figure out what any actual social scientific researcher is up to in their work. Because it's usually possible to make the case for any concrete individual that they kind of fall, well, maybe mainly into one intersection in the two-by-two two table, but that they have elements of others kind of in what they do. There are people who are relatively pure types or close to relatively pure types of one of these four boxes, one of these four combinations of these artificially dichotomized wagers. And then there are people who don't really approximate any one box in quite the same way. So just be aware of that. The function of the two-by-two two dichotomy is not to describe what people do, but to tease out the logical implications of what people do. The conditions, if you will, the conceptual alignments and configurations that underlie the actual research practices that they are engaged in. 
Now the goal of doing all of this, of course, is to give us a more adequate lexicon, a more adequate vocabulary for describing the different kinds of scientific inquiry that we can usefully identify. And that is something that you can identify in sciences generally, but you can also identify that a little more specifically in the social sciences. And all four of the positions that we will talk about in this lecture and in the next lecture certainly exist as going concerns within the social sciences, broadly understood, and can generally be found even in the natural sciences, although some of the monistic and critical, particularly the critical sort of reflexive positions, tend to get minimized a little bit in certain quarters. But again, this is not supposed to be a way of describing what people do as much as a way of teasing out the logic behind what it is that people do. And my hope is that the vocabulary with these four different categories that we are going to be exploring, neopositivism and realism and analyticism and reflexivity, that that vocabulary plus the vocabulary about the wagers themselves is a helpful way of ordering some of these things for our purposes. So... Bear that in mind as we plunge into an exploration of the top row of the table. And in order to do that, we have to be a little clearer about what the difference is between a dualist and a monist wager. So I want to take a few minutes here at the outset to make sure that we are on the same page about that. So a dualist wager, a mind-world dualist wager, is that the mind is a separate thing from the world, that valid knowledge is the mind in some way reaching out to the world to depict it in a representationally accurate way, that that is how knowledge works, that knowledge is about crossing that gap, gap that gulf between the mind and the world. And in that sense, what dualism does is dualism takes that Cartesian position about the knowing subject that doesn't have any external confidence in things because they can be doubtful. And the dualist wager converts that from the sort of tortured, theologically fraught thought experiment that Descartes was engaged in and turns it and it turns that into more of a basis, a starting point. So if one makes a dualist wager, one simply apprehends and approaches the world as if one was an autonomous knowing subject separated from the world by some great gulf of ambiguity and uncertainty, and that knowledge was about reaching across that particular gulf. Monists, on the other hand, do not start there. If you are a mind-world monist, if you make a mind-world monistic wager, what that means is that the place you begin from is a place in which mind and world are continuous with each other. They co-constitute each other. That mind doesn't have to reach out over some gap or gulf to the world because mind is always an already part of and in the world. This makes knowledge not a view from the outside 
of some externally existing set of objects, but instead knowledge is a disclosing of things from a particular perspective and trying to do that as systematically and as clearly as possible. So if you are a monist because you are already in the middle of things, knowing is about ordering those things rather than trying to make sure that your knowledge accurately maps onto things which are understood to be outside of you. So to make this a little bit more concrete, we could say, should say, that mind world dualists tend to like procedures that involve testing, putting forth a conjecture and then seeing whether the conjecture is borne out. And that makes sense if you think about the root position of a dualist mind mind world dualist knower is that they have an internal mind internal drawing that they have come up with and then they have to somehow make sure that it corresponds to the world and the best way to do that is to test it go out there and see whether or not your way of depicting the world actually maps onto the world in some accurate fashion Monists don't have that as an option because for monists, mind and world are not separate from one another. So what monists tend to prefer as research technique is more of an explication, a systematic teasing out of what things appear to be from particular kinds of points of view. So it is somewhat inaccurate to ask a monist about their conditions for testing, because that's not really what monists are all about. Differences between these two approaches sometimes is what leads to the dialogues of the deaf that you get between more anthropologically and more statistically inclined researchers, for instance. Those that are more anthropologically inclined often start from a much more mind-world monist position where participant observation and embeddedness in a particular community is the source of knowledge. Whereas the more statistically inclined researchers tend to think that you have to keep things at arm's length to avoid bias and you have to test your hypothetical conjectures against preferably large amounts of data. The distinction there is not simply a distinction between quote-unquote qualitative and quote-unquote quantitative ways of conducting inquiry, even though it's sometimes expressed in those terms. The distinction, rather, is a distinction of philosophical ontology, which I think is where it actually gets its passion and its vitriol from the way that both sides kind of go at one another. This is not a simple dispute about whether you can count things. Of course you can count things. That's not the point. The point is, should you be trying to engage the world, particularly the human social world, as if you were outside of it trying to draw a picture of it? Or should you be engaging the human social world as if you were part of it and making plain the experience that you have as part of it. That's really at the heart, I think, of a lot of those disputes. And it is a marvelously misleading happenstance that we 
characterize and mischaracterize these disputes that are actually about philosophical ontology as if they were questions of mere method. It's much more profound than mere method. So dualism, monism, and we're going to talk today about dualism. And in order to understand what goes on in this set of dualist reflections on knowledge production, we have to remember that what they are reacting to, what everybody's reacting to here, is the collapse of this logical positivist Vienna Circle project. Because the Vienna Circle folks themselves are only ambiguously dualist. They're actually monistic readings of the logical positivist project. But let's not get into that subtlety quite yet. For the Vienna Circle, unverifiable statements are nonsense. If a statement cannot have evidence backing it up, that it's neither true nor false, it's just a nonsensical claim. So what this means, verifiability is wrapped up with observability. So if I make a claim about the impact of changing certain electoral rules on the outcome of elections, then to make that claim verifiable, I would have to draw out very clearly what the observable implications of changing those rules would be, and then go gather some evidence and see whether or not the changes of rules led to those outcomes, right? So that's the idea behind verifiability. It's wrapped up with measurability and observable implications. So empirical evidence, if you're a logical positivist, always determines whether a statement is true, right? That's the punchline of the demarcation principle that the logical positivists put in place. If you have statements that are properly sensical, then they are statements that can be vetted and verified empirically. And those are the only procedures for producing sound knowledge that a logical positivist will accept. Now the analysis of the logical form of the statement is what gives you the truth conditions of the statement, which is where you end up with logical positivist analyses, spending inordinate amounts of time on things like what happens if the syntax of this sentence is altered in a little ways, changed around a little bit, because then if it is, then the truth conditions for the different parts of the sentence are going to change. So you have very abstract formal logical analyses, which the Vienna Circle argued were, were needed in order to see exactly what the observable implications would be, what pieces of evidence would in fact demonstrate that a particular claim was true. Now the purest logical form can be probabilistic. This sometimes gets people in trouble uh, when they're approaching this because they think, oh, well, if we're only talking about logical truth and logical falsehood, then clearly we have solved some of those problems because we've moved to making uh, statements probabilistic. This actually doesn't solve the problem. So <clears throat> if I'm a logical positivist and I have a general statement which says that three quarters of the time a nationalist movement that is denied representation in formal governmental settings 
will take to protests on the streets. Just suppose I have that as my claim. The fact that that claim contains the notion 75% doesn't change the logic of the claim one iota. The claim is that this will happen 75% of the time, three quarters of the time. So it just means that in order to verify that claim, I have to go out and collect cases and collect information and see whether three quarters of the time the relationship that I have posited actually holds true. So probability is built right in to a logical positivist way of understanding these things, as it is into a neo-positivist way of understanding these things, as we will see. So logical positivism is actually a pretty flexible way of construing statements. You can accommodate probability, it can accommodate conditionals, it can accommodate a whole variety of things. The bottom line is that it has to be about verifying a statement by collecting information that shows the statement to be true. And that is what this gentleman overturns. This gentleman is Sir Karl Popper. And Popper, well, he got his doctorate in psychology at the University of Vienna in 1928. So he's kind of a doctoral and postdoctoral fellow hanging out with the Vienna Circle people. So he's part of that same world with a lot of these folks. And where the Vienna Circle proper is trying very hard to explicate this notion of verifiability, Popper, in his uh, earliest book, which is a revised version of his dissertation, The Logik der Forschung, that what Popper does there is try to argue that the logic of research is actually different. Logic of scientific discovery is not just about verifying things, that it is actually about something else. It's actually about falsifying things, kind of flipping the logical positivist criterion on its head. Now, if this is the only thing Popper had ever published, and if he just sort of stayed in the philosophy of science lane, he may not have become quite as important a figure as he does. But the book he is perhaps best known for is a book that he works on during the Second World War and then publishes in 1945 called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And what Popper does in that book is he takes the idea of fallible knowledge and he converts that or, or, or scales that up, if you will, into a general approach to politics and the organization of society as a whole. And that conception that he lays out, he then utilizes to critique Plato and Hegel and Marx and other philosophical figures that in Popper's reading laid down certain kinds of categorical absolute truths. And this for Popper is a big no-no because then this leads you to totalitarianism and fascism and bad things like this. So you don't do that. You don't have absolute certainty. So stop worrying about absolute certainty. So he's still playing around in the post-Cartesian anxiety world, and he's still very close to the Vienna Circle in some ways. 
because he still is very much concerned with trying to demarcate scientific knowledge from other kinds of knowledge. He takes that kind of imperative from the Vienna folks. But he also takes a decided commitment to thinking that about the purpose of philosophy, not just in terms of linguistic puzzles, but instead in terms of philosophy being a way of providing actual answers and insight into things. Right, for the Vienna Circle, the narrowly construed role of logic and philosophy was to demarcate sense from nonsense. So statements that were not properly scientific, that were being thought of as if they were actually valid and supported by evidence, this for the Vienna Circle is a category mistake basically a language confusion and you can clear it up by just being much more precise about how your language works. Popper on the other hand says no actually philosophy is not just about solving or dissolving linguistic puzzles. Philosophy is actually about dealing with genuine problems. So there's a difference in orientation there in terms of what it is that Popper thought philosophy could contribute to these things. As you can see in things like the Open Society and its enemies where one of the things Popper thinks that philosophy can contribute is a changed way of thinking about social and economic and governance relations, which is not something that the Vienna Circle would necessarily do. Their version of the social reform project was much more about just getting rid of the untruths or things that were taken to be true, even though they were actually nonsensical, and then good would just kind of flower up from there. So the central notion that Popper is known for and parenthetically, he's not the only person who's ever actually argued this. He's just perhaps the most famous one. This notion that what makes a statement scientific is not that it is verifiable, but instead what makes a statement scientific is that it is falsifiable. This is an inversion of the logical positivist position, and it is a direct response to these problems of, say, Cartesian anxiety. Because if we are interested in the falsifiability of a claim rather than in its verifiability. One of the consequences of this is that every piece of knowledge that we have becomes conjectural. None of them are certain. There are no such things as certain claims. There are just claims that have survived rigorous processes of evaluation, and there are claims that have not. And that's it. So we don't get the firm, solid ground that Descartes was looking for. Instead, we get something which is a much more sort of profound reorientation of the knowing subject. So instead of the knowing subject having to like do a deep dive until you reach the rock bottom floor that you can rest on, this is much more for Popper of a kind of outward looking evolutionary perspective which is why another name that he gives this particular approach of his is evolutionary epistemology, that we know things by trying out different conjectures and seeing what is falsified and then the, throwing out the falsified ones and the ones we're left with, that we kind of whittle it down, what we're left with, that becomes the best kind of truth that we have. So one of the consequences here is that empirical testing of propositions should be continual. We should never accept a particular claim as being somehow settled for all time. That is tremendously important 
And it is also tremendously disquieting if you are of a philosophical mindset that says that there should be certain things that have to be understood as established permanently. Because nothing in Popper's world is ever completely established permanently. Instead, it's established based on the best kind of testing that we could do, the best attempt to falsify it that we have as yet carried out. Now, one of the consequences of this is that Popper is a lot less concerned about metaphysics than the Vienna Circle themselves were. Vienna Circle, as you recall, metaphysics is a source of confusion because metaphysical claims are nonsensical, but they appear to have sense. Or Popper would say, well, metaphysical claims are just like any other claim. We just have to convert them into something falsifiable, and then we can go out there and test it and see what happens. So theological claims, yeah, the problem is not that they're referring to a divine being that doesn't have any empirical attributes. It's not that they're resting on some sort of a leap of faith that requires something that is not possible to ground in any set of empirical observations, which would be like the Vienna Circle critique. The Popperian critique would be, well, look, if there were a god and these religious truths that had been revealed were accurate, then you would expect to see the following sets of things. Let's go see. Let's try to falsify that and see whether actually we do see those things. And if we do, great. Hey, maybe there's God. But we tend not to, so eh, maybe not. So that is kind of what Popper would do. There is a, there's a, a way that he's more expansive about the source of hypotheses. He actually, in some sense, doesn't care where the hypothesis comes from. It can come from metaphysics, it can come from theology, it can come from history, it can come from some random idea you had at 2 o'clock in the morning. The important point is that you have to send it into this rigorous procedure of specifying its conditions of falsifiability and then going out and looking for evidence that might potentially prove it wrong. Observable implications are still absolutely central to Popper's understanding of how science works and how valid inquiry works. Now, Popper may have captured what you might call the common sense of a lot of practicing scientists. And certainly, it's kind of hard to tease out the causality here, did Popper put his finger on the way that lots of scientists thought about their work? Or did the existence of Popper's articulation about the work of scientists give them a language that they then used to frame the way that they are engaged in their work? sort of a chicken and egg problem. Regardless, you will frequently hear practicing scientists either referring to Popper by name or simply utilizing this Popperian formulation about falsifiability as the thing that is distinctive about their way of producing knowledge. The problem is, even though Popper sort of grabbed and articulated this self-understanding very well, is that the actual history of science, and I'm talking here about like physics, the actual history is not a linear story of people boldly conjecturing and refuting things. It's a lumpier story. Falsification doesn't always drive changes. Things have lots of contrary evidence and scientific communities still hold on to them, which is absolutely fascinating. The scientific community held on to the idea that light waves needed a medium to propagate in long after there was uh, 
much evidence for this. Now accepted theories, right, things that we now think of as kind of settled, generally start out falsified. They don't work with the empirical evidence quite as well. Bold new ways of making sense of things often have a lot more anomalies to them. So changes in the way that we understand genetics and the way we understand heredity. There's a set of settled understandings about uh, you know, probability distributions in the genomes and so on. But then as we refine and shift a little bit, we end up with these different theories about how heredity works and different theories about how traits are transmitted which now we think, okay, we have a much better understanding of this, but at the time, if you went back and, and looked at it initially, right, the versions that deviated from you know, strict Mendelian rules didn't really capture things well right away. Turns out, as you pursued them, that they get a lot better. Or the famous example of this in the history of astronomy is that the Copernican system was less good at predicting eclipses in the beginning than the Ptolemaic system. And both of them were actually much worse than the Mayan system, which was a lot more accurate. Uh, and it wasn't until greater refinements later on in the Copernican approach to things, that you ended up with a more accurate version of how to predict when an eclipse was going to occur. So there's something weird about the history of science itself. The other issue that often shows up when you're actually looking at the history of science is sometimes theories change not because they are falsified. Sometimes they change because there's a shift in people's background assumptions or the techniques that they use to measure things. The invention of the scanning electron microscope upended a whole number of theories, not because it falsified them, but because it provided a different way of looking at things, which could only have been conjectured before. And if we look back to the famous dispute between Galileo and the Catholic Church, a lot of the actual discussion there has to do with the question of whether the telescope was a valid way of seeing, more valid or as valid as individual unaided human eyes. So there are arguments here that are not just about substantive propositions. There are arguments here that are about the ways in which we measure things, how we use particular pieces of equipment, and so on. And it's really hard to get changes in background assumptions like that and background techniques into a strict Popperian falsification story. What this all means, Philosophers and historians of science noticed this, started noticing this after Popper's approach became very popular. He noticed that falsification is in some way itself falsified by the history of scientific practice. Not all practicing scientists actually engage in falsification of the sort that Popper thinks they're supposed to. And this despite the fact that scientific practice is relatively successful. And again, we're talking here about physics. Right? We're talking about sciences where the success of those sciences is generally not in question. 
right? If this was an argument about the social sciences, there might be some issues because then we point to it and say, where exactly are the successes of the social sciences? What needs to be explained? What needs this whole apparatus of logical analysis in order to explain these great successes? But for things like physics, I mean, you know, we landed people on the moon and we have solid state electronics and airplanes fly most of the time. So we know that scientific practice is relatively successful, even if it doesn't look like this Popperian version of how knowledge is supposed to be produced. 